good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Isn't that a great video? I love it. It puts a great perspective on what we're in and what we're doing and what we've been talking about. We have uh, been in a series called Design and Direction, uh, Rediscovering the Beauty of Work. And uh, Tori did a great job last week, did he not? He did an awesome job sort of kind of getting us connected and getting us started with the idea of the series. And uh, today I'm excited because we're going to talk about um, really the idea as a believer, exactly what you just saw up here. That what, would, what does it mean as someone who is a follower in Christ to day in and day out engage the place that you go to work? I mean, the reality is everybody in here works somewhere in the city. And this is the church of God. We say this all the time. And I just want to say even before we begin, we celebrated five years as a church body last, uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, you can clap for that. It's okay. <laughs> five years, that's pretty uh, remarkable when you think about um, just the life of a, a church plant. And so um, I want to say just even to Tori before we begin, he didn't pay me to say this, but uh, I do want to say to you because I don't think a lot of pastors get a chance to hear from people to say, um, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for what you've done to move your family here. And uh, we are following you. We're behind you and Natalie. And we're grateful for you and the sacrifices that you've made to bring this place to five years in the city of Austin. So uh, we want to thank you this morning. Seriously. <laughs> this is the idea that we've got to begin to think about how us as believers are going to uh, enter into our workplace every single day. We've got to wake up in the morning and we have to realize and ask God to do a heart work and a transformation even on our lives for, for how we're going to view work. Um, I just want to give you a quick introduction to myself. My background is I'm actually from Texas here. Um, I was born in Texas, so I did move away for a little bit, but they always say you come back as quick as you can, right? So I got back really quick. I was born in Del Rio, Texas, and uh, I lived for most of my life in San Antonio. But I went to school here in Austin, and I do have Austin blood in me. My parents are both Austinites. Yeah, I love it. The hook'em horns over there. Aggies, hold your applause till I, we're done, all right? We're good. We're good. Uh, from Austin, Texas, got family that went to Crockett High School. Both my parents did and graduated from UT. And um, I love this city. And I love really um, the heart behind what we're talking about because there's 2 million people in this city. There's a lot of people that are running every single day down I-35 or they're stuck down I-35. And uh, there's a lot of people in your space that don't know the joy of what you know. And the gospel informs us for how we get to engage every single day where we spend the majority of our life. Reality is, um, we all have different perspectives today on how we see work. Some of us see work in a variety of ways. I remember when I was 20 years old and when I was entering into the workspace, I was 20, and I don't know if anybody's like this. Some of you guys are getting out of college, but I saw work as an adventure. I saw it as this amazing adventure. Like I was going to get to get up in the morning. I, got to, I actually got to set my alarm for 6 a.m. for something that I was going to get paid for rather than having to go pay for something to wake up at 6 a.m. College students, am I right? Amen. And I, I got to do that. And then in the process of that, when you get to the office, I was blown away that they actually had food there for you. They had coffee there for you. I mean, I remember sitting at my desk. I loved opening my inbox in the morning thinking, okay, there's going to be emails there for me. Somebody wants me to actually respond to something this morning. I mean, that was insane. And then... I mean, I remember there's actually a friend of mine here today. He took me out, and he, um, he's an older friend of mine. He took me to get, you know, some suits and some ties, and, you know, I couldn't wear. He, I remember this phrase he said. This was probably too much information, but he said, you've got to grow up and stop wearing boxers at some point. Okay, <laughs> maybe that's too much information, but he had a point. He was saying, man, you've got to walk into the workplace. You've got to act like an adult now. And it was an adventure to me. I mean, it really was. 
And then something happens along the way, okay? I see some 30, 40-year-olds in here shaking their head right now, some older people. Some of us start seeing work kind of like a prison, am I right? I mean, we see it as a difficult thing to wake up every morning. We see it as a kind of a momentary thing that we're stuck through, that we're trying to get through and walk through. And there's a sticking point. And some of us feel like, am I ever going to get out of this space? Am I ever going to get to the next place in life? And some of us even feel right now, like, I don't think people see me in my job. I don't think people know me. I don't like being here. This cubicle is terrible. I don't enjoy it. And so we all come from a different perspective. Some of us are in here about to be in retirement. Some of us don't even want to go in retirement. Some of us are over here And we're literally thinking it's just a ladder to climb, a place to get to influence, a place to get more resources, a place to get a bigger house. And so the perspectives in this room, and by the way, why I love this church so much is the fact that it's so diverse. There's different ages, there's different races, there's different socioeconomic classes in this church. This is a representation of the city of Austin. So this matters what we're talking about. So I don't know where you stand today, but what I do know is the fact that God has a way for us to view work in light of the gospel, and God has a way to actually reach the city, and he wants to do it through all of us in here. Amen? I don't really think you believe me when I say that. I think you think I'm just hyping this up. Do you really believe this morning that you're not at your workplace by an accident. That God predestined, predetermined, I don't want to freak anybody out by using that word this morning. It means the same thing in Greek as it does in the English, predestined. He figured out where you're going to be and he placed you there. And it is by no mistake that you're there today. The problem is, is so many of us are deeply unsatisfied in our jobs and we struggle to find meaning in our work. Pastor uh, and a friend of mine, he's an author, his name is Scott Sauls. He wrote a blog recently, it was amazing. The blog said this, he said that there is a global emotional crisis currently happening in our world around the idea of work. A global emotional crisis. He, he highlighted a poll, get this, a Gallup poll recently said that more than anything else in the entire world, more than food, more than shelter, more than home, more than anything, more than safety. I mean, we're talking about a world right now where, I mean, turn on the news for five minutes, people. It's crazy. More than safety, people want a good job. The problem with that is that the same, another poll that was taken and co- uh, coinciding that poll revealed to us that 87% of the world says that they are disengaged and miserable in their jobs right now. They're miserable. Those were the words that were used. Now, again, we have people across the the board here. Some people love their job in here today. But I think this, that if we are working, if you worked from the age of 22 to the age of 65, you took two weeks of paid vacation every single year, 22 to 65, you worked worked 40 hours a week, you're working 86,000 hours in your lifetime. Most experts believe you're going to work actually closer to 100,000 because can we just shake our heads here? Most people don't work 40 hours a week, and most of you have probably started working before the age of 22. And so if you ask me a question, I think that sounds pretty disheartening to think that everybody is miserable. 87% of people are miserable and struggling in their jobs and they don't see the perspective of why they're there. Henry David Thoreau, a poet, says this. He says, most men and women lead lives of quiet desperation. 
I think that Scott is right when he says we have a global emotional crisis. And so I think today it's important for you to understand that God does not just want you to go to work and see that he made work for you. That's what Tori covered last week. But he actually wants you to be satisfied in it. He wants you to find meaning in your work. He wants you to see with a new perspective and new eyes exactly what he intends and hopes for you. Uh, Tori referenced this book last week. It's a t- book by Tim Keller. I really encourage you to check it out if you get a chance. Um, Tim wrote this book called Every Good Endeavor, and it's an incredible case study and, an ex- and, and a theological look at work. And what it highlights for us is it shows us exactly how to look at work through the light of the gospel. In that, he makes an argument. He says, until you understand that there's a greater purpose and a greater meaning behind your work, you will never be satisfied in what you do. And so humanity in general is searching for to understand meaning in life. And so we have worldviews. We create these ideas of what is my world? What does it look like? How's it shaped? We ask questions like, why am I living? What's my purpose? Why am I here? In the same vein, Tim argues that in that, we ask the same questions about work. We say, why do I do work? Why do I go here? Is this mattering? Is this getting us somewhere? And we ask these questions day in and day out, week in and week out, and so it bleeds into our life. And so if you're an elementary school teacher, you might ask, what do I need to be teaching my children in my classroom? If you're a doctor in the room, you might ask, how do I do, perform medicine? How do I engage with my patients? If you are a, a coffee barista, I put that down. What does it look like for you to make coffee for Jesus Christ? No, not like really for Jesus, but like what does it mean for you to make, I mean, would you like write like Philippians 4.13 on the cup and, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and you're caffeinated now, go get them, tiger, and then hand it to you, you know, like. What does it mean to do that? It matters how you look and how you view it. And so if you're wanting to see how God views work, then you need to see how God views the world. And the way that God sees the world today is through creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You just walked through eight months of Genesis. You thought you were getting away with it last week that we were done, and Tori brought it right back up. Thank you for that, taking us back to Genesis 1. We all sweated just a little bit last week. But here's the deal. Creation, God created the world. You can't get six words into Genesis without seeing in the beginning, God created. That God is a creator, that he is the first worker of all mankind, that he creates everything. He created the sky and the fields. Did you wake up this morning and realize that God did that? Or did you just, another day? Did you wake up and look outside and think, my creator was an intelligent designer and he had a purpose when he made this world? Not only did he make it, he then makes you in his image and he says it was, he tells, calls creation good. He then says he makes you and he says you are really good. Good, good is how it's, how it's said in Hebrew. He's emphasizing how important you were. Then he invites you into work. He placed the people in the garden. He gives them a task. He tells them, name the animals. Name these things. Have dominion over it. Be a worker. Cultivate the garden. Work with the garden here. And he says it was great. And he gives them purpose and satisfaction And here's the first text for the morning. And then comes the fall. And so we're going to be in Genesis 3 for a second. And in this, man makes a decision to choose. Hear me on this. Man makes a decision to choose creation over the creator. And what he ends up doing is he ends up turning his back against God. And with that comes consequences. And here's what we see some of those consequences were in verse 17. And he said to Adam, God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife 
and you've eaten the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, this is an agrarian conversation. This is an agrarian, a uh, 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 farming uh, m- biblical imagery here that we see that Adam was in a garden. He was tilling. He was working as a farmer. And he says, cursed is the ground because of you. That was his workspace. So cursed is the work. I hate to bring bad news to you this morning, but before good news comes a little bad, cursed is your workplace. And you're like, I know, Nick, you haven't been to my job yet. I understand that it's cursed. You haven't been around my coffee machine. I know what it's like. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Get this, thorns and thistles it'll bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, in the fall came a curse upon work. And so when we walk every single day, we enter into our workspace. What we're entering into is by the sweat of our brow. We're entering into struggle. We're entering into some toil. We're entering into thorns and thistles, if you see that in the text here. We are feeling the curse today. By the fall, sin and death enter into the world, and we feel the effects of it in every aspect of humanity. You know what I mean? I mean, you, you know what I mean. You wrestle with some things. Even if you're loving your job, there is a wrestling that occurs at times. And sin has made its way even into the workplace. And it's a struggle. And it infects. We are all totally deprived. We have total depravity has hit mankind. This simply means, theological term, big theological term that means that if sin entered, it didn't make us as bad as we could be. It infected every aspect of our life. So it affects our will. It affects our emotions. It affects our heart. It affects our desires. This is what the fall did to us. But the good news of the gospel is this, and this is where the hope is, that God intervenes. This is the redemption. He intervenes divine action to redeem his human creatures from death. It's God's grace that intercedes. And in God's grace, we receive the Holy Spirit, Christian. That's who is in you this morning. Do you operate that way? Do you see and believe that the spirit of God is inside of you? That he is guiding you? That he is your counselor, your wisdom? That he will teach you as you open the very breath of God, the very words that are written on this page that God breathed out, that the spirit of God is inside of you. And you're a new creation. And so you can't take the spirit and be a new creation and believe that the new creation is going to just change one aspect of your life. The same way that sin enters into your life and infiltrates all aspects, so does grace. Grace intercedes, amen? And it infiltrates all aspects of your life. And it moves into every single space, including work. So you can't say my family is going to be a new creation, but not my work. I'm not going to allow grace to intercede this aspect of my life, but not over here. And we are compartmentalization people. People, we do this. We go churches on Sunday and work is over here on Monday through Friday, maybe Saturday, sometimes on Sunday after church when I've got to go home, you know? And we compartmentalize, but God wants to infiltrate all aspects of it. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the rest of our time today looking at the book of Colossians. I think this book is powerful to come around this idea and the gospel reality of this, that God infiltrates your life with grace. He permeates as he is redeeming. And guess what? He wants to use you as a redeeming agent where you are. This isn't about Nick and Tori being pastors or Jake and Paul being elders and only them. They're going to go do the work of the people of God where they go in the city. It's 
it's about if we're going to reach 2 million people in the city of Austin, that God is calling you today to come awake to the reality that you are a redeeming agent. And God wants to use you where you are. He longs for the gospel to infiltrate your community and your workspace. And so Paul, if you open up the book of Colossians, writes this book. He writes this letter. And interestingly enough, uh, the book of Colossians is actually, the letter of Colossians is written by Paul. But Paul had never met the people of Colossae. He was in an imprisonment at the time. And he was being imprisoned because he was announcing the good news of Jesus Christ. And so he wrote this letter to a group of people that he'd never met in a community that he had never been to. But he, he had a friend, a servant, a fellow worker, Epaphras, who worked with him. And Epaphras came with him and met him inside of the prison that he was in and came and brought him news and said, hey, man, I got to tell you about what was going on here in the church of Colossae. I want to tell you about what was going on in my community at the well. I need to talk to you about this. And he speaks to him and he tells him, uh, right now, man, we are really struggling around this concept, the idea that there are cultural pressures outside in the world and it's beginning to infiltrate our church. And the cultural pressures are beginning to actually win over the words of Jesus Christ. And so he tells Paul this, and he tells him his issue that false teachers are literally leading people astray, and that false teachers are guiding people around cultural pressures and tempting them to turn away from Jesus. And so Paul writes back to the Colossians, he addresses the issues that Epaphras raises, and he challenges the people of God at the church to fall more in love with Jesus. Amen? If you don't hear one thing this morning, my prayer and my plea to you as a pastor of this church, forget all these words up here. I'm not saying forget the word of God. It's important. It's so powerful. But you leaning into the word of God will actually stir your devotion for our King Jesus. And God longs for us to be stirred back towards him and daily. Do you love the Lord? Do you have an affection for him right now? Are you going through the motions? Is life just a typical standard Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Sunday? Come here, sit in my seat, do the same seat, read the same thing, talk to the same people. I'll leave here and it does, nothing changes. God longs to stir our affections for him. He longs to draw us back to him. He says he's jealous for our love. He longs for you. He loves you so much and we're going to see how much he loves you. Paul begins to tell him in the, in the first chapter, he goes on to talk about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. He talks about how great and grand he is. And he writes a poem about how amazing God is that he's above all things and all things hold together because of him. And then he gets into this piece and he's building a case to get to where we're getting to today. He's building a case and part of that case is he begins to say this. You don't have to turn there, but if, if you're at um, Colossians 2 verse 6, check this out. He says, therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus, walk in him. Be rooted and built in him. Be established in the faith. And then he goes down, and check this out, in verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with him. He forgot all your debt. He forgot your trespasses. He canceled the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. We can close up today and go home, amen? Like, that's it. God canceled every record of debt. Look, can I just confess to you, on the way over here today, I was stressed. I really was. I was driving over here. I mean, when, you run a, when you're working to run a church plant, it's crazy, by the way. So if you ever come to Tory and I in the morning and you're like, hey, can we talk about something real quick? We're probably going to be like, hey, can we just talk afterwards? Because it's crazy right now. And I was stressed getting over here. And I just I literally had to realize again, like, my selfishness started to 
intercede into the middle of my life. And then I open this up and I'm reviewing my notes again and I'm reading this and I'm going, but God's forgiven my trespasses. He's canceled the record of my debt. And this fires me up and this spurs me on and this leads me forward. And Paul is doing the same case to the church of Colossae. He's trying to build them up in their identity and who they are so they understand where they're going and what they're doing in their lives. And Paul writes this. And he begins to show them that when you placed your faith in Christ, hear me this morning, Christian, when you placed your faith in Christ, you received a new humanity. Amen? You received a new humanity. You are no longer your old self anymore. So maybe that's news to you this morning. That God does not, if you place your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of the person and the God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, then you no longer have a record of debt held against you. You have a new creation, a new humanity. And Paul even says, stop living that old, and if you start in chapter three, stop living that life. Take off that old humanity. Take off the old self. Put on the new self. And here's where we are. And as he's saying this, he's building this case of the new humanity and who they are. And what he wants you to see is that when you place your faith there, the gospel not only liberates us from sin and shame and from the debt and penalty, but it gives us a new lens to look at the rest of life through. And here's what he says. Paul gets extremely practical. And the rest of this message is actually very practical. I love when Paul gets practical. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like, don't you ever go to church? You're like, well, that's great, guys. But what do I do now? You know? You're like, that's really ethereal. Like, that's up there. But I don't know what's next. And Paul, our brother Paul gets real practical. Check this out. We're going to be in verse 18, chapter 3. Read this with me. Why? Oh, no, I'm sorry. We're going to start in 17. 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, say that with me. Whatever you do. do. Come on. Say it again. What? Whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I know some of you married couples this morning were like, I thought we were doing a, a series on work, not marriage. Stick with me. He's, he has a point on why he's getting there. Fathers, if you have some fathers in here, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged, as I hear a child screaming out there. <laughs> we might have some children's ministry people provoking children this morning. Fathers, don't do it. Slaves, obey in everything. This is what I really want you to see this morning. Uh, Verse 22, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance for your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ this is amazing. What is, what is Paul doing? He is taking a basic institution of the Roman household. So he's writing to people who would understand the, Rome, the Roman culture and life. And he's taking a basic institution of the Roman household. Now, this was a very authoritarian household where the male had a great deal of power and authority. In fact, the power and authority in the house. So much so that when you read about this and your historical background of this, you learn that the male in this society could actually kill his wife, his children, and his slaves if he decided that's what was needed. It's crazy authoritarian. But Paul comes around and says, not so with Jesus Christ. Because for a Christian, 
Jesus is our Lord. For a Christian, Jesus is our king. He is the supreme authority. And so he begins to reshape the most basic Roman institution around Jesus, who is a self-giving hero of love. He begins to, let me say that again. He begins to reshape an institution around our hero, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is the most self-giving person to ever walk the face of this earth. He makes a case that because you've been redeemed, that no part of human existence, including this institution of this house, can be left untouched by the liberating love of Jesus. Nothing. Guess what that means this morning for us? As he addresses a slave whose job was to work for his master. Let me say it again. A slave whose job was to work for his master. That even the gospel intercedes and infuses into our work life. Now, a couple quick thoughts around slavery. And then I'll give you five points on, on this, on how the gospel infuses our work and we're out of here. Five, but here's the deal on slavery. You have to understand that the institution of slavery is not what you and I are used to these days. So first century slavery in the Roman times was very, very different from what you and I are used to. We have, in our context as Americans, an understanding of the 1800 slavery that it was a disgusting institution that absolutely still to this day the effects are being felt in our city, in our state, in our neighborhoods. It's unfortunate. It's terrible, and we have to fight against it. It's not talking about that. He's not talking about human trafficking, which is still very active, and slave labor, where there's 27 million slaves in the world today, the most ever in all of humankind. Even down the street, three hours into Houston, second largest city in the United States that has this issue. More slaves. He's not talking about that. What Paul is talking about was a government-recognized institution that had laws, it was a permanent situation that had an, uh, it wasn't a permanent situation. It had an exit point. And so if you, you had many on-ramps to get into the bond servant or the slave system within the Roman context, and many of those on-ramps were this, you could be willingly getting into it because you didn't make enough money. And so you would say, there's a man over here that's a compound. He needs extra help. I'm going to sign into this under a, essentially a contract. I'm going to get into this, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, uh, find myself um, willingly working for this, this master. And you had an exit point even in the process. You had a contract for him. Uh, example, even in Paul's time, some, it wasn't a socioeconomic thing. It was a way into Roman citizenship at times to get out of taxes. Uh, Paul even had in here that there was uh, the one, I, I read this in the, some of a, a commentary here, that Paul said that uh, wrote to a wealthy slave a bond servant who was actually one time the treasurer of the city. So technically, these slaves weren't even a, a class of the poor, but they were in all social spheres. It was a way of life. It was part of the system. It was part of the culture. And Paul even writes to slaves in 1 Corinthians, and he says, if you, if you don't have to get into this, don't get into it. He says, rely on the Christian community instead. He says uh, to Philemon in the letter, he says, of my friend uh, Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, Accept him back into your life as a brother. And so Paul wasn't necessarily advocating for it, but he was speaking towards an institution. And here's how we see. Stick with me. Let's look at this one more time. Verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So number one, 
How does the gospel shape our work then? Well, slaves in everything, obey those who are your earthly masters. As though you were fearing the Lord. I know that uh, I'm hitting on a conversation in here this morning that you're like, Nick, you don't understand my boss. You don't know him. You don't know what he does or she does to me and how this is. But God calls us to recognize the authority structures who are over us as our leaders that he's placed in power. That's a hard thing. It's a hard thing even in our country right now, if you ask me. He says, you fear the Lord. That language, fearing the Lord, he says, in everything, obey those masters, not only by way of eye service and people pleasing, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. This is common language to even talk about the way they would talk about God in the Old Testament, to fear the Lord, to see them in honor, to see them in awe, to see them as someone who's been placed there. And so our ability to obey and honor our authority is a way to honor the Lord. And you're like, man, again, you don't know my boss. Well, let me just tell you a couple examples in Scripture of people who had pretty terrible bosses but God used to shape their culture and the world. Joseph with Pharaoh. David was chased by Saul. Nehemiah with Cyrus. Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel tried, uh, was almost killed by Nebuchadnezzar. And when Daniel addressed him, he said, O Lord, O King, may you live forever. In the book of Esther, Mordecai with Xerxes. Mordecai, Xerxes was a terrible, terrible, terrible uh, king. And one of the things that he did, he, there's even a record of him building a bridge. And in building that bridge in the process, uh, the bridge was actually hit by a storm, wiped out, and Xerxes says, he's gonna, he says, throw the workers into the water, kill them, and then whip the sea 300 times and chain it up. <laughs> he was crazy. That was his boss. But Mordecai heard that his master was going to be killed. And so he told the officials, and here's what God used him for. Mordecai rises in culture, is kind and respectful, and his influence is used to save an entire Jewish race. Whether you have a good boss or not, God calls us to respect him. 1 Timothy 6.1 says this, Let all who are under a yoke of bondservants regard their masters worthy of all honor, so that, don't miss this, so that the name of God and the teaching of God may not be reviled. Let me say that again. Listen here. Don't miss this if you checked out. Let all who are under the yoke of bondservants regard their masters worthy of the Lord, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Your job is an opportunity. You know that your job and the way that you operate in it is actually one of possibly the greatest evangelistic efforts that you could have. You could be influencing your boss by the way that you honor him. And in doing that, it says so that God is honored and the name of God is revered and not reviled. So that the name of God would not be blasphemed and that the gospel would not be adorned. So let me ask you this, Christian. If you, walk to, if you go to your workplace and you're talking bad about your boss behind their back, guess what happens? The name of Jesus is actually scorned. He's not seen as bright and light and salt. He's not seen as a light in there. And so this is what he's telling us, that the gospel reshapes the way we view our boss. Number two, it reshapes the way we view our work ethic. 
Paul says this, he says in the same verse that we just read, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. That word sincerity means single. It means one track mind. It means one focus. It literally is the opposite of cunning. It's the opposite of deceiving. It's the opposite of malicious. And so he's saying you go into your workplace not by way of eye service, not by trying to gain. Literally that word eye service is a word that Paul actually probably made up. But that word literally means not as a way of trying to gain approval or pleasing or get somebody to like you or get somebody to say uh, you've done a great job or try to earn your way secretly and sneakily up the ladder. Paul is saying be single-minded, work hard, work hard. And when you work hard, people are going to see the Lord working. Jesus said it this way in the parables, be faithful with what you have and he will give you more. I had a boss and he was a, uh, he was a copy boy for the CDC, which is the Center of Disease and Control. Uh, the Center for Disease Control. It's the Center for Z Disease Control. That's what it is. It's in Atlanta. And his job was to, yeah, that was a tongue twister for me right there. His job was to make copies day in and day out, eight hours a day, down in a dark shaft of a basement in a corner at a desk with one copy machine next to him. And so the whole center of disease would send him everything to copy. He'd get a stack every day. He'd take the stack. He would copy, 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 all day long. And he said, after the third day, I was so frustrated. I was so angry. He said, I had to change my mindset. And so what did he do? He said, I'm going to be the best copy maker that this place has ever seen. That sounds really cheesy, doesn't it? <laughs> he said it. And guess what? When he resigned, they had to hire three people to fill his job because he worked so efficiently and so proficiently that they saw him as someone who worked hard. Henry Longfellow says this, the heights of great men are reached and kept not attained by sudden flight, but they, while their companions slept, were toiling at night. Ralph Waldo Emerson says, if a man can write a better book or preach a better sermon or make a better mousetrap than his neighbor, <laughs> even if he builds a house in the woods, the world will make a way and beat a path to his door. This is who we are called to be. We're called to look different than the rest of the workplace. We're called to work harder. I mean, I'm just going to be real this morning. How many of us are engaging social media? Do you know there's a study that just came out that if you didn't engage social media at work, you would save two hours a week? Two hours a week. Some of y'all are probably like two hours a day maybe. I don't know. That was me. That is me sometimes. I'm going to be honest. The greatest evangelistic program can be the way you work at work. The quality of your presentation to God will be determined by your work. We got two more and we're out of here. Three, number three, how does the gospel reshape our lives? It reshapes how we see what we do. Um, I'm keenly aware this morning, uh, Paul says this, he says, whatever you do, remember whatever you do, work heartily, not for men. And so I'm, I'm aware this morning that in here, some of us feel like our jobs don't even matter. We feel like, why, I, I don't think it matters what I do. I, I'm a, you know, I don't know. I'm a, I don't know what you are. Are you the guy in the, the, the bottom of the basement copying for everybody? Does this really matter? And this is what the gospel breaks down. When God says, whatever you do, work heartedly, not for men, it breaks down because God says you do matter. God shows us that we do matter. It re, the gospel reshapes our work to show us that nothing is meaningless. Tori hit this last week. Tori hit this and said that um, Martin Luther says it this way, actually. I, I love what Tori said, but Martin Luther says this way. He says that the people who do the simplest work in life are the fingers of God. And so you get fed every day. God promises that you're going to get fed, right? He promises that you're going to uh, get some food. And how does he do that? 
Well, he has a farm, and he has farmers. And farmers have to sow seeds. And where does he get the seeds from? Somebody had to pack the seeds and ship them out. And then they get to the farm, and there has to be equipment to do the farming. And then there has to be someone to milk the cows. But there's got to be someone who made the contraption to put the milk inside of. And the milk gets shipped on a delivery truck, and someone's got to drive that delivery truck, and it's got to get to the grocery store, or it's got to be pasteurized first, and then to the grocery store, and then it's got to be stocked, and then it's got to be organized, and expiration date's got to be put on it, and then it's got to be checked out, and somebody's got to pay for it, and you see that God is using you to fulfill His promises. He's feeding people through some of the things that some people do, and there's promises laid in all through Scripture about this, and so it should re- Align our thinking that is God using my work today to do his work, to do his work. Martin Luther also said this. Uh, I'm sorry, I missed my note here. Jesus lived, he, he made a point of this, that Jesus lived his life for 30 years. And most of his life, he lived his life for 33 years. 30 years of his life, he wasn't doing public ministry. Most of his life. At the end of the book of John, it tells us that if we were to write all the things that Jesus had ever done, we wouldn't have enough books to fill the earth. What does that tell you today? For 30 years of Jesus' life, he did a lot of work. He worked as a carpenter. And for 30 years of his life, it went unnoticed. You don't know about it. We don't know about the majority of the work that Jesus did. And for 30 years of his life, he didn't get credit possibly for what he does. God sees you in your work. Number four, the gospel reshapes how we see what is to come. Paul says this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Everything you're doing is working towards something. Tim Keller says, um, he's fond of a saying that says, history began in the garden and it ends in a city. If you read the rest of scripture and you get to Revelation, there is a new Jerusalem, a new city that is coming. It will come down upon creation. And one day this struggle and this toil will be over and God will restore humankind and creation to how it's supposed to be. And in doing that, God is using you. He's having you be a part of the development of this earth and where it's going. He knows that there's earth to come and he's using you right now to develop it. Um, I love this story. I couldn't help but share this today. Is that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a story to help um, process his own frustration at work. You know J.R.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings? He wrote this story, and the story was about an artist who had been commissioned to paint a mural on the city hall. And the artist spent his entire life painting, his entire career painting on the city wall, this mural that he had this vision for, this beautiful grand tree that was going to be painted. And he started, and he started working on this leaf, this story says. And he worked on the leaf, 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 and it never got finished. And finally, one day, he completed the one leaf. The leaf was finished, but the next day he died. And on the train to heaven, the artist is going down the tracks, and he sees in the distance this tree. And it's the tree that he envisioned in his head that he was going to build. And on it, he gets close. He asks the conductor to stop the train to get off. He gets out. He sees the tree, and it's more beautiful than he ever imagined. It's more gorgeous than he ever thought of. And he sees the leaf that he had been working on his entire life. And even the leaf was more gorgeous. In the end, he realized that his leaf was a gift to all of mankind. J.R. Tolkien writes this because he was processing the frustration of one of his works. 
he felt like he'd spent his entire life writing this book and nobody was ever going to appreciate it. The book was Lord of the Rings. Your work matters. The leaf that you are painting right now matters. God is using it to develop and build creation to come. So if you're a city planner, there's a new Jerusalem coming. If you're a lawyer, there's justice coming. If you're a doctor, you will be healed. If you're a teacher, people will gain great knowledge and great wisdom. And if you're a pastor, our faith will be made sight. The gospel gives you hope that your job matters. And the last point, and um, the band can come up here. The last point that I want to say is, he said, he ends the, the message and he says, you are serving Christ. So the gospel not only reshapes the way we see authority, the way we see our work ethic, the what we actually do, what is to come, but the gospel reshapes who we're actually really working for. You are not working for your boss, really. You're working for God. Christian, let me say that again. To the front, to the back. You are working for God. God did not make a mistake when he placed you where you are. And you don't need a pastor to engage your workplace to take the kingdom of God, heaven on earth with you. You need to be awakened to the reality that God wants to use you today where you are. You're serving him. You're working for him. Our prayer is that you would wake up tomorrow morning and you would see work in a way that you've never seen it before. I realized Tori preached last Wednesday and, or I'm sorry, last Sunday, and then this Wednesday, you probably maybe were like, uh, back at it. But today, I want to tell you that you're not working for a paycheck. Everybody's working for the weekend. No, you're not. You're not working for the weekend. You're working for God. In Acts 17, this is where we close. Paul's walking into Athens. And as he's walking in, man, this microphone is killing me. I just got to acknowledge it for a second. As he's walking into Athens, he sees gods that are built everywhere across uh, humanity. He sees, um, he sees gods over here to this and gods over here to that. And he sees gods all over the place. But at the very uh, last one, he sees an unknown god. It says, for all the gods we didn't create an idol towards, this is the god of the unknown and Paul walks into this place with all these people listening to him, and he speaks to them, and he says to them, let me tell you who that unknown God is. That unknown God is the only God. His name is Jesus Christ. And he goes on to tell them the gospel, and one of the things he says, I love this, is he says, having determined and allotted their periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel and find their way towards him. Let me read that again. That God made from one man, these are Paul's words, every nation of mankind, having determined their allotted periods and their boundaries and their dwelling place. God determined it today. That they should seek God in the hopes that they would feel and find their way towards him. Yet he is not actually far from any of us. What's Paul saying? Acts 17, verse 26. He's saying today that you were placed where you are for a reason, 
that people would find their way towards God. Your coworkers, hello, don't, don't check out. We've got one minute. Your coworkers are where they are today because God is there. And you're there. That's why God is there. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ is in you. He's the hope of glory. He's in you. And you are serving God. And you know what God's plan for creation is? It's to redeem it. And he longs to use you now. He longs you to work hard, to honor your boss, to see your work as meaningful, to see your work as something that's building the kingdom that is to come here on earth, that you take with you to work tomorrow, the heaven, the heavens, you take the kingdom of God with you where you go tomorrow. You carry him with you. Carry the name of Jesus. And people will seek and find their way towards God because you are there, Christian. Are you available to see that your 86,000 hours are going to count for something? Are you open to the people around you? Are you awakened to the reality that God wants to use you? Your work has purpose. He's with you. He hasn't left you alone. Let's pray. God, we love you. I am grateful that Jesus had 132 public appearances, Lord. And your son, out of those 132, 122 of them were in a marketplace. I'm grateful that he spoke 52 parables and 45 of those parables had a marketplace context. And God so long the church has seen that the pastor's work is to engage their community and make disciples and reach the city. But Lord, we know that that's not what the scriptures say. God, we know that the scriptures say it's our calling, that you didn't call us here, you haven't left us here, Lord, to just get closer to you today. You've actually left us here to make disciples and to carry the kingdom of God and advance it wherever we go to redeem, redeem as we go. And you long to use us through that. Lord, I pray today for all of our brothers and sisters here that they would see and be awakened to the reality that you long to use them in their space. I pray that you give them a new heart today to rethink the relationships that they have, to rethink their relationship and their, even the way that they engage with their boss, the way that they work tomorrow and the rest of this week, that they get to carry the greatest mission of their lives into their space of 86,000 hours. And I pray for the person in here who feels forgotten, who's struggling today in their job, who's frustrated with their boss, that you would give them a grace beyond all measure that they can't even imagine. I ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.